Welcome to the Equipping You in Grace podcast, hosted by Dave Jenkins. The Equipping You in Grace podcast is a podcast about helping Christians develop a biblical worldview in a conversational tone about issues inside and outside the church. Now, for today's episode, let's join our host, Dave Jenkins. Well, welcome back to the Servants of Grace podcast. My name is Dave, and I'm the host for this show. And on today's episode, we're going to continue our series through the book of Psalms, looking today at Psalm 59 and in the Watchtower. Would you please join me now in prayer? Heavenly Father, as we come now to this great psalm, Lord, we're reminded of our great need of the grace of God. First and foremost, to help us to do, as Proverbs 4.23 says, and to guard our hearts with all due diligence, and to take heed and to obey the command given in 1 John 5.21, little children, keep yourself from idols. And so, Lord, we pray also with the psalmist that you would put a guard over our lips, that we would guard our hearts with all due diligence, that we would do, as John Flavel said, we would do the heart work that you do through the work of your word and by your spirit in the life of your people. And so, Lord, as we look at this great psalm, there is so much for us to take away, to learn, to discover, to be challenged, to be convicted, to be even encouraged by. As the work of your word uh, works in our life by your spirit and for your glory. So, Lord, we thank you for this time that you have given to us now to open your word, to read it, to study it, and to grow more to be like our Savior King, Jesus Christ. In your precious name, I pray, amen and amen. Well, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them to Psalm 59. Psalm 59. And hear what the word of the Lord has to say to us today through this psalm. Deliver me from my enemies, O my God. Protect me from those who rise up against me. Deliver me from those who work evil and save me from bloodthirsty men. For behold, they lie in wait for my life. Fierce men stir up strife against me. For no transgression or sin of mine, O Lord. For no fault of mine, they run and make ready. Awake, come to meet me and see. You, Lord God of hosts, are God of Israel. Rouse yourself to punish all the nations. Spare none of those who treacherously plot evil. (coughs) Each evening they come back, howling like dogs and prowling about the city. There they are, bellowing with their mouths, with sword in their lips, for who they think will hear us. But you, O Lord, laugh at them. You hold all the nations in derision. O my strength, I will watch for you. For you, O God, are my fortress." My God in his steadfast love will meet me. God will let me look and triumph on my enemies. Kill them not, lest my people forget. Make them totter by your power and bring them down, O Lord, our shield. For the sin of their mouths, the word of their lips, let them be trapped in their pride. For the cursing and lies that they mutter, consume them in wrath, consume them till they are no more. They may know that God rules over Jacob to the ends of the earth. Each evening they come back howling like dogs and prowling about the city. They wander about for food and growl if they do not get their fill. But I will sing of your strength. I will sing aloud of your steadfast love in the morning. For you have been to me a fortress and a refuge in the day of my distress. 
Oh, my strength, I will sing praises to you. For you, O oh God, are my fortress, the God who shows me steadfast love. This is the reading of God's holy, precious word. Following David's prayer of repentance in Psalm 51, Psalm 52, it begins a series of prayers focused on deliverance from wicked foes. This series of rescue prayers concludes with Psalm 59 and Psalm 60, which seem to bookend the trials of David's career. Psalm 59 is ascribed to an episode at the beginning of David's public life, while Psalm 60 is assigned uh, assign to a later portion of David's reign. After these two bookend psalms, the theme of David's prayers uh, shifts to a longing for communion with the Lord God. Psalm 59 is said to have been penned when Saul sent men to watch David's house in order to kill him. This event marked the start of David's problems, or troubles, I mean, with King Saul. After initially hailing David for his victory over Goliath, Saul soon became jealous for David's fabulous popularity. Saul's envy poisoned his thinking towards David, and he began imagining plots surrounding the youth, despising, despite David's loyalty and faithful service. Saul became so incensed that on two occasions he tried to kill David with a spear. Failing at murder, Saul sent thugs to surround David's home and tried to kill him, but David's wife, Saul's daughter, Michelle, warned David, helped him to escape by a window and deceived Saul's servants long enough for David to get away in 1 Samuel 19. Now, Psalm 59, it contains numerous elements that connect this story. It seems to have been expanded at some point, however, to apply the lessons more broadly. So David sees Saul's brigands at, as symbolic, the nations that are opposed to God in verses 5 and 8 of Psalm 59. And he sees an analogy between his rescue and God's care for his persecuted people. James Boyce summarizes that just as God protected and delivered David when he was surrounded by the hostile forces of King Saul, so also will God protect and deliver his elect people from whatever enemies may surround them. Now, this psalm is organized into two main appeals, both of which conclude with a refrain expressing David's faith in the Lord's salvation. The two appeals here, they are similar, and the two refrains are almost identical. But there are differences, and by noting these, we see how David's prayer for God to change his circumstance, more importantly, changed David by strengthening David's faith. So the first petition that we're going to see in verses 1 through 7, it, they contain a very standard appeal for God to deliver him from wicked foes. Look with me at the first three verses of the psalm, which say, Deliver me from my enemies, O my God. Protect me from those who rise up against me. Deliver me from those who work evil and save me from bloodthirsty men. Behold, they lie in wait for my life. Fierce men stir up strife against me. These are the arrow prayers of the kind that panic believers often shoot up to heaven. Deliver, protect, deliver, save. Now, David cries out against those who rise up, who work evil, who lie in wait and who stir up strife. David's example shows believers that when all we can do is pray, we should not hesitate to do so in the most direct manner. David not only prays for God to rescue, but remains calm enough to pray thoughtfully, submitting three reasons why God should help him. The first is the grave danger that he faced. In verse 6, uh, it depicts David inside a ring of circling dogs, 
who bear sword-like teeth at him, not bothering even to hide the bloodthirsty nature of their mission. When he says, who they think will hear us, David frets. Now, like David, we, we should send up prayers to God, like beacon flares heading skyward whenever we're surrounded by danger, whether it is a physical, physical threat, a temptation to sin, or a spiritual and emotional assault. Are you discouraged today? You should talk to the Lord about your feelings. Are you dismayed? Ask God to give you courage. Are you in dire need of provision? Jesus promised that when it comes to his children's genuine needs, he says in Matthew 7, 7 through 11, ask and it will be given to you. For God the Father will give good things to those who ask him. And in addition to spelling out the danger, David also second pleaded his innocence in the situation in verses 3 through 4 which says, For no transgression or sin of mine, O Lord, for no fault of mine, they run and make ready. David is not claiming sinless perfection or trying to justify himself by good works. Rather, he simply points out here that he's not in trouble because of any sin or any failure on his own part. So far as the situation is concerned, David is an innocent victim of unjust malice. And it's because of David's innocence that Saul's mad hatred was so tragic. Saul was sure that David was plotting against him when, in fact, the man was completely loyal. Saul's murderous actions were extreme, but the problem of false accusations and misplaced resentment is common enough, especially when our thinking is clouded by jealousy or even insecurity. Proverbs 14.29 says, Whoever is slow to anger has great understanding, but he who has a hasty temper exalts folly. If you think that somebody has it out for you, are you willing to reconsider the evidence? Have you prayerfully considered your own motives? Have you taken out the log in your own eye? Have you made an earnest attempt to talk about your concerns with the person you are accusing? A charitable investigation will often show how wrong we can be in assessing the motives and judging the actions of others. You know, uh, it is easy to point the finger at other people, but we need to be reminded that Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, even, he talked about this. He talked about how we need to take the plank out of our own eye. So it's easy to say, you know what, that, that issue, that sin is somebody else's problem. And maybe perhaps it is, but have you done an investigation? Because as we saw, when we looked at Psalm 51 even, David didn't shift blame. David didn't make excuses. David humbly and specifically apologized when he wronged somebody. If there is even a sliver, an ounce of truth to a claim about yourself that you're making with others, then you should repent. And not only that, but you know... um, even if you haven't wronged somebody, there's, there's nothing wrong in the Christian life with taking the low road, what I call the low road. It's the humble road. It's the eating the humble pie road. Because there's one thing that I know, and being married now 16 and a half years, and being in ministry almost 23 years, nothing clears the air like an honest, humble apology getting specific about your own struggles, about your own specific failures. It opens the way for an actual conversation to happen, to clear the air about things. You can actually work through, you can actually process 
things that are happening. And not only that, but there's only one who knows our thoughts truly. So when we consider that fact, we have to understand that there's only one who ultimately knows everybody's motives, and, and that's not us. And so we can easily, you know, easily replay the actions and the deeds and the misdeeds of other people as they've sinned against us. But very early on in my in my teenage years, I remember starting to talk about it this way. It is so easy to point out the failures of other people, but what about your own? And what this does is it slows things down. I don't know about you, but I need to slow things down a bit. I remember one of my pastors one time in Idaho, he said, you know, Dave, you need to work on stop replaying these events over and over and over again like a movie theater in your mind. And that was so helpful to me because if you're anything like me, if you have an analytical, logical mind, then you can replay the events again and again and again and again in your mind and in your heart. But let me ask you, does that help? Is it going to help you at the end of the day to forgive the person that hurts you? Or, or do you need to forgive that person as well for the hurt that maybe you've caused? Do you even know about the hurt that you've caused? We are too quick. I can say this as somebody who has been a Christian a long time, has grown up in the church, I've seen it over and over again. It's too easy to point the finger and say, you know what, you did this, you did that. But what about you? What about you? Where is Where do you factor into that equation? Because if you put two sinners in the room, guess what's going to happen? There's going to be sin. And what there needs to be is repentance when we sin against one another. What there needs to be when we sin against each other is not only repentance, which is the first step, but reconciliation. Now, even though Saul was committed to his ill-informed malice, David's clear conscience was a great aid to his prayers. Romans 12, 18 says, If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. If we conduct ourselves honestly and honorably with all, our clear conscience will help open our hearts in prayer to the Lord. James Boyce says, If you are guilty of wrongdoing, then you cannot pray boldly and you will appear before God convicted of your sin rather than vindicated and assured. Are you innocent in your behavior and attitude towards your employer, co-workers, neighbors, family members, and fellow Christians? Especially when dealing with difficult or even dangerous people, Christians should make sure that we can say with David that we are not in any kind of sin or at fault. In fact, in addition to its effect on our prayers, Christians should be careful how we live so that our good deeds will glorify God when we're persecuted. The Apostle Peter stressed this principle to the early believers in 1 Peter 2, 12, and 20, when he said, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. If when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Remember, when we are hated because of our obedience to Jesus, 
that suffering draws us near to the Lord and conforms us to his image. And when suffering for doing good and speaking the truth, we share in Christ's own suffering. And so Peter concludes in 1 Peter 2, 21 and 23, when he says, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. And when he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. And now, having pointed out the danger as well as his innocence in the matter, David gave a third reason why he hoped for God to rescue him from danger, God's own character. And he says this in verses 4 through 5, when he says, Awake, come to meet me and see. You, Lord God of hosts, are God of Israel. Rouse yourself to punish all the nations. Spare none of those who treacherously plot evil. Now, just as David earlier shot up a series of arrow prayers regarding his danger, he now cites a series of God's names, which, according to William Plummer, contains the reasons for the divine help being immediately extended to him. And so David cries, O Lord, using the covenant name Yahweh, which reveals God's self-sufficient greatness. God of hosts, he continues, naming God as the commander of the mighty legions of heaven, powers overwhelmingly stronger than the foes who surround him. And finally, he prays in verses uh, 3 through 5, God of Israel, which, like the name Yahweh, points out God's covenant bond as a savior and lord of his people. David possessed the right to call on God using these names because he was not only an outward Israelite, but an inward member of God's covenant through faith. Believers in Christ who come to God today have an even greater and more potent name to assign to God in their prayers. Jesus taught believers to claim our privileges as children of God, naming him our Father in heaven in Matthew 6-9 in the Lord's Prayer. The Apostle Paul gave us an even more potent way to approach God with our needs, referring to him as the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ in Ephesians 1.3. We can boldly present our requests through faith in Christ, who now intercedes for us at God's right hand, bearing in his body the marks of his death for our sins. On the basis of Christ's atoning blood, Hebrews 4.16 encourages us, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. In fact, Christians should always approach God with the same boldness that David exhibits in Psalm 59. And so first, let us pray on the basis of true and especially urgent needs. Second, let us be able to present our innocence even while we confess ourselves to be flawed sinners. And if we have wronged, let us do what we can to remedy the wrong before we appeal to God. Then third, let us come boldly on the basis of who God is and the promise that he has given in the gospel. And as we approach God in this way, John Calvin sees grounds for our confidence in prayer. When he says, we cannot fail to feel greater liberty in pleading a cause which is the cause of God himself. He is the vindicator of justice, the patron of righteous cause everywhere, and those who oppress the innocent must necessarily rank themselves against his enemies. Now, David's appeal to God's names and the promises that go with them leads him to into the refrain in which he exudes confidence in God's salvation. And the two refrains in Psalm 59, 9-10 and Psalm 59, 16-17 are almost identical. And David celebrates God in his strength. In verse 8, he says, Oh, my strength, I will watch for you. O oh God, are my fortress. 
Because of this might, David exults. God will laugh at them. He says, you hold all the nations in derision. And David also delights in the Lord's faithfulness and his mercy in verse 10. My God and his steadfast love will meet me. God will let me look and triumph on my enemies. The first refrain here is especially noteworthy in the way in which it is different from the second refrain. Verse 16 at the end of Psalm 59, David says, I will sing of your strength. Verse 9, David prays, Oh, my strength, I will watch for you. Now, this verse connects with the theme of waiting on God that is often expressed in the Psalms of deliverance. For example, in Psalm 52, 9 and Psalm 62, 5. Here, however, David is not merely waiting for God to do something, but also watching expectantly for it to happen. And having reminded himself of who God is and of what promises God has made to his covenant people, David in his despair has given way to an optimism that is watching for deliverance. In fact, David's expression in verse 9, I will watch for you, it reminds us of the Old Testament prophet Habak, who became famous for erecting a watchtower from which he looked for God's salvation. Now, Habak lived in a time when most Israelites had turned from the Lord and when wicked foreign powers were freely assailing God's covenant nation. The situation dismayed uh, Habak, just as Saul's murderous plot dismayed David, and the prophet did not understand why it was happening. And like David, Habak pointed out the ferocity of the enemy attacks and appealed to the holy character of God in Habak 1, 5 through 17. Now, desiring an answer and being determined to trust the Lord, Habak declared in Habak 2.1, I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. David and Habak together offer good advice to believers who are fearful and dismayed, seeing no way out of their troubles. What should you do in such a situation? Well, Psalm 59 answers that you should appeal to God for help. You should ensure that your conduct is blameless and godly, and then expectantly watch for the deliverance that you are trusting the Lord to provide. And in a latter time, when Israel faced dismaying situations, King Jehoshaphat prayed with the same spirit in 2 Chronicles 20, 12. Oh, our God, we do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. After you have prayed according to the promises of God, make sure that you keep your eyes on Christ, setting up a watchtower in his word and occupying a high place of faith from which to gain early notice of his coming. Now, David's second petition, it differs from the first that we've considered already in asking for judgment on his enemies instead of rescue from danger. His language is violent and even vehement in verses 11 through 13, which said, bring them down, let them be trapped in their pride, consume them in wrath, consume them till they are all no more. Now, just as David has given three reasons for his prayer for rescue, he now offers three reasons for the judgment of his evil foes. First, he's going to consider the edifying instruction that such judgment will provide for the people of God, as he does in verse 11, which says, kill them not lest my people forget, make them totter by your power and bring them down, O Lord, our shield. And so in order to serve as an object lesson for the godly, David asked for his enemies not to be destroyed all at once, but rather that God would crush and even scatter them gradually. And this way, God's people will notice what happens to those who rebel against the Lord. And David desires God to receive all the glory he deserves for his righteous judgment. 
when he prays in verse 13, to the ends of the earth, people may know that God rules over Jacob. And this prayer mirrors David's motive in slaying the Philistine giant Goliath and telling him in 1 Samuel 17, 46, the Lord will deliver you into my hand, that all the earth may know there is a God in Israel. And we should likewise pray that God will rescue us and cast down wicked powers in such a way that his people will be brought to reverent fear and that the world will be persuaded of God's judgment. Meanwhile, when we grow impatient with the timing of God's saving interventions, we should consider that God may be teaching us lessons that can only be learned under affliction. We may complain that God seems slow to deliver us when he's teaching us not to forget him and to rely daily on his grace. Raise your hand right now if you've had to wait on the Lord in the midst of, you know, getting a raise or your spouse getting a raise or you know, you've been uh, concerned about a particular situation with a family member and you've been waiting and waiting on a diagnosis and waiting for it to come through so that you'll know, so that you'll have the answers. If you've never been there before, you can rest assured that at some point in your life, under the providence of God, of course, you're going to be in such a situation. And this psalm can prepare our hearts even now for that kind of response, that faith-filled response. And maybe even today you're in that situation, and I want to speak to you as well. Because it's hard to walk through times of struggle, times where you're struggling financially, times where you're suffering. I can say uh, having walked with many people who are suffering, many in my, in my own suffering as well, especially with my parents over the last decade, I can say it's hard. There's times when, you know what, the only answer is to put your hand on, on somebody's hand and to pray with them and to say, you know what, dear brother, dear sister, the Lord is with you. Fear not. Uh, go to your Savior. Let's Let's go and Pray to our Lord. Let's pray and call on the name of the Lord together. That's sometimes the best thing. Sometimes it also is good just to encourage one another with Scripture. You know what? This is what's helped me in the midst of these types of situations. That way you're coming alongside. You're not saying, you know what? This would be really a good idea. Uh, The approach is this. (laughs) Rather than saying, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you something. Instead, try to come alongside them. Try to say, you know what? In, in these types of situations, here's what's helped me. Maybe it can provide some comfort for you. Maybe it can provide some help for you in the midst of what you have going on right now. In this way, we can heed Galatians 6, 1 and 2, especially Galatians 6.2, which tells us to bear each other's burdens and thus fulfill the law of Christ. We're supposed to walk alongside one another. And part of that means that we're encouraging one another in the midst of our suffering, in the midst of our affliction, reminding ourselves and reminding others of, of the patience of God, of the goodness of God, of the love of God shed for us in the death and resurrection of Christ. Now, David's second reason for requesting God's judgment is the sinfulness of his enemies. In Psalm 59, 12 through 13, he says, For the sin of their mouths, the word of their lips, let them be trapped in their pride. For the cursing and lies that they mutter consume them in wrath. 
And so Saul's murderous plot was simply wrong, just as the men surrounding David's home were grievously violating the law of God. It was right, therefore, for God's law to be upheld through his just wrath against David's sinful foes. And realizing that God judges sin, we should also ensure that our sins are forgiven, lest we too fall under the wrath of God. Scripture teaches that God sent his son Jesus to offer forgiveness through faith in the blood of his cross. Jesus tells us in John 8, 24, unless you believe that I am he, that is the promised savior, you will die in your sins. It is so that we might learn the gospel lesson of forgiveness through faith in Christ, that God has been patient and not yet judging the entire world. Though evil will be short-lived, God allows it to continue so that we may learn our need for salvation and that his people will be trained to walk closely with God and trusting prayerful faith. Now, a third reason for his enemy's judgment, David points out in this passage, is they're not going to get, not getting better, but worse. In verses 14 through 15, he says, each evening they come back howling like dogs and prowling about the city. They wander about for food and growl if they do not get their fill. Now, in the ancient world, dogs were generally thought of not as pets, but as frightening predators. The noise of dog packs often filled city streets with menacing sounds in the night. Hungry dogs are deadly, and no matter how much they eat, dogs are always still hungry. This is the problem with sin and with the wicked. They're never satisfied by their self-serving deeds and violence. James Boyce says, It is the very nature of evil to be dissatisfied, wanting, but never having enough, eating, but never getting full, grasping, but always seeing the object of desire sipping, slipping from one's hands. In this way, God judges evil even before its final end in condemnation. How different is the experience and the destiny of all those who turn from their sins uh, to the salvation that God offers through his son, Jesus Christ. Psalm 23, five through six records them as rejoicing. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Now, this psalm concludes with a repetition of the refrain in which David celebrates his confidence in God's mighty strength in verses 16 through 17, saying, Like a fortress and a refuge in the day of my distress and in the steadfast love that God shows to his trusting people. So the key to understanding this is the change from the previous refrain. Whereas David previously said, uh, oh, my strength, I will watch for you. He now rejoices in verses 9 and 17. Oh, my strength, I will sing praises to you. The significance of this change in David's thought is even clearer in the original Hebrew text, where the change of only a single letter turns the word watch, shamar, into worship, zamar. And here is the great difference it makes when God's people turn to him in trusting prayer. Our fear gives way to faith so that those who watch for the Lord end up singing praises to our God with great joy in the Lord. Now, notice that David does not begin praising the Lord because of his outward circumstances of change. His situation has not changed one iota. The reason David now sings prayers to the Lord is that he'd been watching for the Lord's salvation. And so he prayed in faith and then trusted the Lord in such a way that he was looking forward to whatever God was going to do to save him which in this case was to open a window for his escape. And even beforehand, God had encouraged David through prayer so that his heart wanted to sing praises to his faithful Lord. 
Are you waiting for the ideal circumstances in your life to yield praise to the Lord? If you are relying on outward changes, you're seldom going to experience the joy that God intends for his people to know and to share. Anyone can be happy when times are good, but it is a mark of believers in Christ that they rejoice when times are bad. This is not because believers are stoics who, you know, muscle up and, uh, you know, just put on a happy face, who refuse to face reality. Instead, Christians rejoice amid trials because we remember God's faithful salvation in times past. We trust His promises to bless and provide. And we are watching in such a way that our hearts are encouraged and our attitudes are changed into joy. Alexander McLaren urges us that they that watch for providences will never want a providence to watch for. And he warns the equally is opposite true. Remember King Jehoshaphat, who admitted that he did not know what to do, but who prayed and set his eyes on God. The Lord sent a prophet with news of a coming victory and told Jehoshaphat to march out with all the people singing in 2 Chronicles 20, 14-23. This is how God wants us to face us to face our circumstances through the eyes of faith. Better still, remember Habakkuk in his Habakkuk in his watchtower. The prophet was dismayed and even confused, though he remembered God and trusted his grace. He sat up high, watching for what God would reveal to him. And as Habakkuk trusted and watched for God, the, the same thing happened to him that happened to David in Psalm 59, and that will happen to us if we do likewise. And by the end of of his book, nothing had outwardly changed at all, but by looking to God and watching in prayerful faith, Habakkuk himself was changed. We know this because of the beautiful song of contented joy with which he praised the Lord in Habakkuk 3, 17-19. Though the fig leaves should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off in the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer. He makes me tread on my high places. This is the song that God desires from our hearts. If Psalm 59 is any indication, the reason that God has delayed his rescue may be that he wants us to learn to sing like this in the Watchtower faith. Alexander McLaren says this, that the outward deliverance may tarry, but ever there comes before it, as heralds of its approach, the sense of a lightened burden and the calmness of a strengthened heart. In this way, the prayer that began with thankfulness and passes on into waiting, even while in sorrow and sore need, will always end in thankfulness and triumph and praise. Let these inward blessings be the testimony of our faith in the Lord as we wait and watch for his deliverance. William Cowper, in his hymn, Sometimes a Light Surprises, adapts Habakkuk's song with words that should be tuned, that we should tune our hearts to, when he says, Though vine nor fig tree, neither their wanted fruit shall bear, though all the fields should wither, nor flocks nor herds be there. And yet God, the same abideth, his praise shall tune my voice, for while in him confiding, I cannot but rejoice. Put another way, in the midst of the difficulty, in the midst of frustration, in the midst of doubt, in the midst of, you know, struggles with finances and hurt and pain and chronic disease and illness. And you know what? We could go on and on with that. Eyes on Jesus. Eyes on Jesus. That's, that's what the author of Hebrews tells us. 
in Hebrews 12, eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. You want to finish well. You want to last long in, in pursuing the Lord and who has united to him, uh, united us. We are his and he is ours. And we're united to him by faith in his name for the purpose of communing with him. See, this is good news. In the midst of, of the situations of our lives, we have a Lord, we have a God who truly cares for us. And over and over again in the Psalms, we're reminded that, yes, you know what? Life happens. Life is hard. Situations happen. Difficult people come into our lives. And yet the Lord remains the same. I'm reminded of Hebrews 13, 5 and 9 that tells us that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. Dear Christian, do you know that in the midst of the struggles of waiting on a raise, in the midst of, you know, whatever that is, hearing that diagnosis, those, those troubling words from somebody that, that cut deep, you have a Lord who cares for you. You can rest in him. He is enough for you, and he always will be. And not only that, his great summons is, as we considered earlier in Hebrews 4.16, he invites us, he summons us to come before the throne of grace. This is a 24-7 access that you and I have if you are united to Christ by faith in his name. You have hope, you have meaning, you have purpose, you have value in the eyes of God as an adopted child of God by the grace of God. That means that Christ is always enough for you, and he always will be enough for you. So are you resting in that truth today? No, whether enemies may assail you may with their wicked words, and no matter what they say, may you stand on the word of the Lord. May you rest in the promises that are given in the word. And if you've sinned, if you've erred, if you've hurt, if you've done something against somebody, keep those keep quick accounts before the Lord. Meaning, take that to the Lord. 1 John 1.9 says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Don't, don't rehearse those things in your mind again and again and again. Instead, repent. Own up to any failure as we see with David in Psalm 51 when he was confronted by Nathan. Repent and don't just say you're sorry. Turn away from your sin. Humbly and specifically confess your sin to the Lord and to those that you have sinned against. There is great joy in the Lord. There is there's great joy in the Lord. In fact, you know what? One of the things that we could end on that the Holy Spirit is producing in us, Paul says in Galatians 5.22, is the fruits of the Spirit. And one of those is joy. These are things that, that God, through the means of the Word, the preached Word, the Word that we read and study, He is using in our lives. And He is taking the Word and drilling it deeper into our lives, bringing repentance, bringing encouragement, bringing comfort, bringing the help of the Son of God and the Son of Man, Jesus Christ, to us. So let that be an encouragement today, no matter your circumstances. 
And yet let it also be a reminder. If you have not repented and put your hope and trust in Christ alone, there is only now for you today. Maybe even in this moment. We don't know how long we may be here. We don't know the length of our days, but we have one who does. He knows the length of our days, the hairs on our head, and he knows our hearts. So if you have not repented and put your hope and trust in Christ alone, I plead with you on the basis of Acts 16.31 to repent and to believe and put your hope and trust in Christ alone. He is the only way to God, as John 14.6 says, and only by believing in him can you become a child of God. And so wherever you're at today, if you're a Christian, I plead with you to take your cares, take your hurts, and take your struggles to the Lord. Maybe even you're in a season where you don't seem to have any. Take that to the Lord. Always go to the Lord. Take your prayers. Take your take your day. Be, be thankful, maybe even that you don't have any major cares to the Lord. Because Paul commands us as Christians in 1 Thessalonians 5, that thankfulness is God's will for us in Christ. 1 Thessalonians 4.3 says that God's will for us is to sanctify us. That is to make us more like Jesus. So no matter whether you have much or little or not much at all going on, the Lord is good, he is faithful, and he is always sure and steady to his promises. As 2 Corinthians 1.20 says, God is faithful. Titus 1.2 says that God will never lie. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that your word is true and that before, before us is a great reminder, a great reminder not to replay the, the many ways in which people have sinned against us, but a great reminder to take our cares, to take our hurts, to take our frustrations to the Lord and to rest, to re find rest in the only one, the Son of God and the Son of Man, who can only, who alone can offer peace to our weary, struggling souls. So Lord, I, I pray for those who do not yet know you, that, that they might find this rest. They might find this peace in the only one who can give it to them through the death and resurrection of Christ. And Lord, I pray for my fellow brothers and sisters in Christ who, who are struggling. They're struggling with the current cultural climate, the economic realities of life, the, the various political situations going around the world that may even be very personal. Lord, we all have many things going on in our lives. and it, But yet, if we are in you, you have given us peace. You have given us hope. You have given us joy. You have given us your love. You have given us it all at the cost of your own son in our place, and for our sin, and you were buried and rose again. So Lord, help us to, even now, to look up, to put our eyes on Christ, to put our hope in the promises revealed in your word. Help us to look with faith even as we anticipate the soon and imminent return of our Savior King Jesus. And we thank you, Lord, for the time that you've given to us now to open this great psalm. Help us, Lord, to be watchful and help us to wait in faith in the promises of God revealed in the word. In Jesus' name, amen and amen.
Thank you for listening to the Servants of Grace podcast today. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe, leave a rating on the app, and share our episode with your friends and family. If you'd like to, you can follow us on Instagram at Servants of Grace, on Twitter at Servants of Grace, or by searching Servants of Grace on Facebook. You can also find this podcast on the front page of our website at servantsofgrace.org.